0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato, Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato sama Sambuddhasa. Nam saranam gacchami. Nam saranam gacchami. Sangam saranam gacchami. Duti ampi pudam saranam gacchami. Duti ampi dhamam saranam gacchami. Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gacchami. Tatiyampi Buddham Saranam Gacchami. Tatiyampi Dhammam Saranam Gacchami. Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam
1: Gacchami. I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. The way I experience this um, practice we're doing and really in a sense the whole uh, path of Buddhist training of uh, bhavana, of cultivation, is uh, for me there are two fruits uh, and for the most part this is a rendering that matches. Well, the teachings. uh, Those two fruits being the development of insight or wisdom and the development of uh, kindness and compassion. So, the the question that that comes up sometimes, I think, for many of us, in hope, for many of us is simply the question of what does this really mean? What really is insight or wisdom, and uh, what is kindness or compassion, and are we practicing formally and living in a way such that uh, that question takes root uh, within ourselves, it takes root in practice, uh, and that perhaps maybe that rooting dissolves a separation between what we do when we come to a a special arrangement like this retreat uh, and the rest of our lives. So that hopefully, uh, while we take this on as a reflection, it's, it becomes something greater than an intellectual thought project that really, uh, hopefully it leads to some embodiment, a, a different way of being in relationship to ourselves and to others, um, which means to situations that we find ourselves in uh, inevitably in daily life. It's it's said in some of the stories from the canon that the that Siddhartha Gautama, who later became called the Buddha, had uh, fairly good conditions. Uh, we might um, we might trust some of these stories to indicate that his basic needs were well taken care of and that he could have had. Uh, a life of relative ease, at least uh, in terms of having a good position in society, uh, having opportunities that maybe other people didn't have. Uh, maybe he would have been protected from certain uh, material discomforts and was perhaps destined to rule over a large piece of land, and so there would have been some power and authority. And <clears throat> Of course, this is the kind of thing that uh, most people's egos would be inclined to seek, and you know, should one be born into a position where that would be easy to have, one might not uh, ask too many questions. Certainly, might not do much to uh, steer themselves away from that fortunate birth. And yet, we have a story where uh, young Siddhartha Gautama goes out. In the middle of the night, and uh, he has three insights. One, uh, coming across a person sick, uh, becomes more attuned to this reality of having a body that the body is going to be uh, in pain from time to time. And as he traveled throughout the night, uh, finding someone who is old and without all the faculties. Uh, that make life easy and he saw simply oh the body gets really old and uh, that also comes with pain Uh, comes with uncertainty and then toward the end of this story uh, in some of its renderings near the morning comes across a corpse lying on the side of the road and you know it becomes quite clear to Siddhartha Gautama that this is really the this is the grand finale, you know, lying uh, on the side of the road, um, life as we knew it, uh, having ended. And whether this really happened or it's a clever, if not cliché, teaching story to rouse inspiration, uh, if we're willing to be honest, uh, this does account for three basic truths that we can't, that we can't escape. These are the truths of uh, aging, sickness, and death. Right. I'm going to read a short poem. My number. Is death miles away from this house? reaching for a window in Cincinnati, or breathing down the neck of a lost hiker in British Columbia? Is he too busy making arrangements, tampering with air brakes, scattering cancer cells like seeds, loosening the wooden beams of roller coasters, to bother with my hidden cottage that visitors find so hard to find? Or is he stepping from a black car parked in the dark end of the lane, shaking open the familiar cloak, its hood raised like the head of a crow, and removing the scythe from the trunk? Did you have any trouble with the directions? I will ask as I start talking my way out of this. Is death miles away from this house reaching for a window in Cincinnati or breaking or breathing down the neck of a lost hiker in British Columbia? So is death something uh, near me? Is it near us or is it something far away? And so the, uh, Billy Collins, the poet is, is asking us to consider how often are we in touch with an inevitability? Do we live as if it's far away or do we live as if at any moment? Is he, so this is death personified, is he too busy making arrangements, tampering with air brakes, scattering cancer cells like seeds, loosening the wooden beams of roller coasters? So is death preparing uh, for someone else or is death preparing for us? Is death seeking someone else or is death seeking us? And do we live? Well, uh, what what lens do we choose to live through? I know that for myself, if I check in with this question, if you will, there's a sense that I, I see and agree with the truth of death, and yet it's not gonna happen to me anytime soon, right? So that's more of an intellectual understanding. to bother with my hidden cottage that visitors find so hard to find. So the idea that we can remain hidden, we can, and and that's what I was just referring to, we can somehow avoid this. Or is he stepping from a black car parked at the dark end of the lane shaking open the familiar cloak, its hood raised like the head of a crow and removing the scythe from the trunk? Or is death right around the corner? Did you have any trouble with directions? I will ask, as I start talking my way out of this. So he's trying to talk his way out of death as if he could do this, as if we could do this. This is the, ultimately this is the delusion that we live much of our life in, right? A couple of you might have heard this um, story before, and I'll share it briefly. <laughs> I was called into the local um, hospice where I, where I used to work, and uh, when doing hospice work, we, we sign up for a certain amount of cases or patients. and I would always hold one case at a, at a time because I learned I couldn't. Uh, more so just in terms of my schedule. I couldn't handle well more than one person. I would feel guilty that I wasn't seeing them enough. And for the most part, you're supposed to go in and see the person assigned to you and connect with them and and then fill out some paperwork for that one person and and leave. And what we find in these kind of institutions is, is that they are uh, under and understaffed and when you go into them there's unmet needs everywhere uh, you're just you're just you're like swimming in the reality of, of uh, people at the end of their life not being uh, not having their needs met uh, it's institutional it's, it's really no one's fault and as I went through I, I hit a button that was like a you know created a security boundaries so that people couldn't get out and when i went through the door there was a woman in a wheelchair who was not the person assigned to me that i could already see the person that i was assigned to me through some glass windows that when she was sitting at the dining room table with a bunch of other people and there was a woman right in front of me in a wheelchair and she was screaming and i'm not dramatizing she was actually screaming Um, and she was just trying to get attention and you could sort of surmise that she had probably been screaming for a while to get attention and I could see aides and nurses and so forth and you know one of having worked there for a while one of two things were happening they literally had too many things to do they couldn't attend to her or most likely a combination of that and they had come over to her many many times and connected with her and talked to her but they had to you know they couldn't stay with her the whole time there's so many people uh, living here. So, you know, she saw somebody come through the door, had no idea who I was, and just, you know, did everything she could to get my attention. And I paused, and, you know, the pause was this place of questioning, should I go see this person or should I go see the person I'm um, assigned? And, it, and, there, and there, were, there were sort of two dilemmas within that. One is I'm feeling pressed for time you know, I need to go see my person, the person I'm assigned, the patient I'm assigned. And I also need to get back to whatever else was on my schedule for that, for that day. And as I thought about this story, I was quite intimidated by that person's uh, gesture for support, which means I didn't know if I would be able to support them. I didn't, I didn't know if I had what it required. And I chose to go and connect with her um, and she, and she just looked at me. <laughs> and she said, "My whole life is gone. It passed away before me." and and we had a conversation after that, and it was clear that in many ways she she wasn't that coherent um, but was able to convey a, a distinct understanding that there was so little that she could do to change what had come before. Um, my assumption, and i have to I have to stay connected to the notion that it's an assumption, but you know, I think there were regrets, I think there was real pain um, in the way she was trying to articulate this. Um, it's probably one of the most significant teachings I've ever received. And, and I do believe that due to circumstances that her heart and mind were uneasy and that there wasn't going to be opportunity to um, to correct that. She wasn't going to have the adequate support and tools and you know, maybe the the people that she might have needed to make amends with uh, weren't going to be around in a timely manner to allow for that to happen. There's a Zen saying that comes through the uh, Soto and Zen liturgy that is chanted every night, perhaps at many temples, Uh, but nightly for sure at Upaya Zen Center uh, in uh, Santa Fe where I sat retreat a couple years ago life and death are of supreme importance life and death are of supreme importance do not squander your life do not squander your life and I remember that every time You know, once I knew where in the schedule this was gonna happen, I I, I felt this significant contraction here. Um, um, There was this sense of uh, wanting and waiting for this uh, moment where, you know, a hundred people were were chanting this with a really loud voice. And uh, the way that uh, sometimes could, could pull me forward into my own aspiration for a particular way of living and there was a way in which, on some nights, it would hit me um, like a wall of grief. I have not, in certain ways, lived the life that I wanted. And what if I don't? You know. Either way, it was like hitting, getting hit with a with a with a baseball bat every night. You know. What am I really doing? So, so what is this uh, importance? Life and death are of supreme importance. Do not squander your life. Well, it's important to be honest about the inevitability of death. That's what the the Buddha was suggesting through his teaching on the three insights. It's important just to be honest about that. And, you know, fundamentally, we will die. And it's important to cultivate one's life intentions, proportionate to that truth. So this is more of contemporary interpretation. Uh, That is to say that it's important to become clear about one's values and to do what we can to live an authentic, purposeful, meaningful life. And that's for us individually, of course. That's the meaning of authentic. It's um, important that we define that for ourselves. And that ultimately, we live a kind life. Ultimately, we live a kind life. So that um, our response to the inevitability of death is a value-driven life, a purposeful or meaningful, authentic life, and a kind life. So how do we do this? How do we practice or and? How do we practice and live a kind life? And really, can we just get rid of the and, right? Can what we're cultivating here be something that continues to be cultivated and in daily life, and in can daily life be a practice so much as practice refers simply to intention and in what is being cultivated. Do you see that? Okay. So, the side I mentioned in his talk uh, may have been yesterday, three ways that we can do this, and I'd like to offer a few thoughts on each of those three ways. And as a preface to doing that, I want to uh, offer a reminder that our life is ultimately a relational life, that this is so unique to be silent, to, to have some semblance of solitude, right? To hardly be communicating through the normal conventions, right? But for the most part, our life is a relational life. It occurs within relationship to family, uh, loved ones, primary partners, colleagues, uh, strangers, right? Other beings, dewas. <laughs> Baby skunks. <laughs> <coughs> have you seen the baby skunks? In the Sudhimaga, it is written, Now, you who have gone forth, gone forth into the path of practice, has it not been said by the Buddha as follows, yogis, those who meditate, when the mind deliverance of loving-kindness is cultivated, developed, much practiced, made the vehicle, made the foundation, established, consolidated, and properly undertaken, 11 blessings can be expected. And the fourth, you might remember, in fact, Sayadaw gave us this list twice, I think, this week. The fourth is that we become dear to human beings, that we become dear to human beings. And we might hear that and think, oh good, I want to be liked by everyone else. (laughs) But that's actually not what's being conveyed at all. That's of benefit to the ego, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So there's three ways uh, that we can pursue this, to practice and also to embody. And that is through action, speech, and thought, right? So what are the actions through which we would engage this pursuit? Generosity, compassion, patience, and kindness, Generosity, compassion, patience, and kindness. So we we read, we recited together this morning and each morning the precepts and... um, The precepts are an example of this. They're not the only example of this, and they might not even be the best example of this, but they are an example of this. And we tend to do this practice, we refer to it as a practice, and we tend to do it on retreat. And in fact, on most retreats that I've been on, we recite the precepts on day one, and that's it. And if you were on retreat with me, In New Jersey, a year ago, you recall that we did them every day, and at the monastery in Burma, we do them every day, and we're doing them every day now, and I can say that when I'm most connected to a clear understanding of why I've become interested in and committed to practice, when I am uh, closer to those uh, intentions... uh, when I notice that I'm living in such a way that I kind of have a, I have like a precept lens on my interaction uh, with people. It's, it's when I'm in a, the phase of practice where I'm reciting the precepts in the morning, which is, you know, I usually sit a little bit and recite the precepts and, you know, usually I do a little journaling or something like that. And there's something about evoking the intention to live kindly or generously or patiently, or compassionately. There's something about, uh, and and as you're learning from the metaphrases, that that can really impact the filter, right? And so it's always been interesting to me, and it's not really an accusation or a judgment, but it's been interesting to me that we don't talk about precepts that much, that we reserve it for retreat, right? And it's not to adopt some system externally opposed on, us or to create a system of dogma that, that traps us and limits our our freedom, our creativity, but rather like any other form of practice, we have something to bump up against to see our own mind, right? And we have a system of uh, protocol, which is a system of reminder. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. This is what I do now, right? The, form of a bell ringing says go to walking meditation or go to sitting meditation or go to lunch. The form of the precepts say be kind, be generous, be patient with others, be compassionate. So the first precept is to refrain from hurting or killing other beings. Right? To refrain from hurting or killing other beings. So to protect Life from physical and emotional pain. To protect life from physical and emotional pain. The second precept is to refrain from taking what is not given. So literally not stealing. That's easy to see. Uh, But more broadly, not making assumptions. Not making assumptions about another person's needs. When we talk to people on retreat, we take their silence. We don't know if they're willing or want to engage with us, but we, we take something from them. If we relate to people with hostility in our lives, we take their safety. We can assume that we don't have permission. We can assume that they want to feel safe. If we relate to people with dishonesty, we take their trust. Most of us don't need a precept that tells us not to steal, right? And so the result of that is that we overlook the precept. I can tell you for sure, I've read all five of these and said, I don't need these, I do all these. But if we're willing to engage at an authentic level of practice, at least for me, I do need these, or at least I benefit from being in relationship to them such that there is a deepening Of good deeds, the capacity to live in a way that increases well-being and allows for less harm, uh, my skill, my ability to do that is increasing. Number three is to refrain from sexual harm. The precept that we take on retreat says sexual activity, zero. Great retreat practice. Uh, Chosen daily life practice for periods of time for some people, great practice. And for the most part, uh, that's not a strict precept in, in many people's lives. So the, the precept that we might become quite interested in is um, not causing harm through sexuality. So when we when we see someone as a body, we fail to see their full humanity, and we fail to see the full range of their needs. Right. If, that that's what objectification is, right? So if we fail to see someone's needs, we're inevitably gonna fail to see and recognize and adequately respond to the underlying need for them to feel safe. This is something that we all share, a need to feel safe. Everyone can be hurt by all forms of intimacy. And intimacy are places of vulnerability, fundamentally. Intimacy are places of, vul- of vulnerability. In a, vu- a, v- a vulnerable place is a place where the risk of harm is increased exponentially. Okay. So in our intimate and sexual relationships, uh, great, great care is required always. The fourth is to refrain from harmful speech, which I'll... The fourth precept is to refrain from harmful speech, which I'll address when I get to that category. Number five, refrain from intoxicating drink and drugs that cloud the mind. The purpose of this is not necessarily to to make a distinct case for or against, uh, but rather to make a case for uh, the value of renouncing anything that makes wisdom, or kindness and compassion more difficult, period. And so we have to evaluate the role that anything, in particularly drugs and alcohol, uh, the role that anything um, has on that capacity, that capacity to be thoughtful, present, uh, emotionally regulated, and adequately responsive. Which would be kind and compassionate. Okay. So, what does it mean to practice at the level of speech? So this is for the most part a exploration of what it's like outside of retreat since we've taken a, you know, hard vow of silence, if you will hear. Again, our relationships rely substantially on communication, and so this is both an easy way, then, to establish safety and care, and it's a real easy way to cause harm, right? We've all been harmed by other people's sentiments and thoughts and timing, and uh, we've all harmed others in this way, right? And no matter how hard we try, this is gonna be a dynamic that we bump up against in our lives, so it's, you know, this is also a patient practice, and it's a, it's a practice that really requires us to stay, you know, this, develop this muscle of staying. Can we stay in relationship to people in our lives when this, uh, when this piece gets tricky? Do we care enough to actually um, stay to resolve what hasn't gone well. I also like to talk about right speech as a listening practice. Uh, do we truly uh, listen to people so that they feel valued? Are we able and willing to reserve our opinions sometimes in order to allow space for others others opinions? Right speech means uh, not just being honest, it remains. It it means being honest, not just avoiding lying. So what does this mean? This means that we're willing to explain our feelings to loved ones, family, friends, co-workers. And this is a way, ultimately, of showing care for the relationship. It shows that we are working to both sustain and grow a relationship with that person. And this often requires uh, a willingness to be uncomfortable, a willingness to deal with our own fear of rejection or abandonment. All relationships are going to create confusion. People's needs are not always going to be met. There's going to be a difference of opinion, right? So if you're like me, you might sometimes avoid what feels like it would be a difficult confrontation both to protect yourself from uncomfortable feelings and emotions, right? And ultimately, it's a, an avoidance of caring for the relationship, right? So, can we can we be willing enough to be uncomfortable? Express our thoughts and feelings around interactions, uh, decision making, etc., so that a dialogue can be in place in order to meet someone in the middle, right? So, this is actually. Because if we don't, uh, then at some point down the road there's resentment and that actually could have been avoided, right? We don't have to agree with people uh, with whom we share our life. We don't have to get them to agree with us. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to have the same ideas and opinions, but we do have to be in relationship about one another's views in order to meet somewhere in the middle to have any kind of relationship when i was first exposed to uh, this whole idea of conscious communication i was living in western massachusetts at a place called the Krapalu center for yoga and health i was embedded in a program uh, co-developed and co-taught by the Holistic Psychology Department at Leslie College and Kripalu Center for, Center for Integrated Leadership. And I was a staff person on a team of people that were overseeing a semester curriculum for undergraduates. And so there was all this conscious communication training, which was, uh, Both really sweet and useful, and at times really cliched and annoying, and (laughs) um, uh, and and yet you know it was really my first exposure to this, and the biggest takeaway was this uh, mantra, and you know that really represented a practice, which is that in in doing this right speech practice, I'm willing to make a mess because I know right, like I'm willing to make a mess and. I'm willing to stay until it's cleaned up. Like I'm willing to say how I feel. And should I not do that skillfully or should I hurt your feelings totally unintentional. I'm willing to stay in this relationship with you in this conversation until it's cleaned up and we see each other fully and we understand each other better and we're in the end more connected. Right? So when we try all of these practices sometimes we Uh, we step on each other's toes? Can we stay in it? Can we stay in the engagement and the exploration? This also means, uh, right speech also means being skillful with feedback and criticism. Is the criticism we're going to give someone helpful, really? Is it really helpful? Or is it backed by ill will? Is the timing right? Is the time, are we able to pause, reflect, uh, to the best of our ability, see their role in it, and more importantly, see ours, because we actually don't really know what their role in it was, right? And can we regulate, can we self-regulate, and we, can we come to the conversation um, from, a, from a, a centered, grounded, kind, patient place? Or are we immediately reactive? This is what you just did that was totally wrong and has screwed everything up. Maybe it just didn't go the way I wanted it to. And is this person, thirdly, is this person in a position to receive feedback? So why are we dear to humans, why are we dear to humans? Primarily because we have played a critical role in their own experience of safety and trust. We have played a critical role in their own experience of safety and trust, in their own experience that the world they are living in is a safe place to be, that's it. That's why we're dear. These are the conditions in which someone wants to be close to us. These people are safe to be themselves. They're safe to risk being vulnerable in our presence. They're safe to be imperfect. They're safe or allowed to seek what they want in life, not what we want for them or think they need. And they are safe to have and to express a full range of emotions. The emotions that some people express will be intimidating to us and make us uncomfortable. Can we develop the skills to stand in that discomfort so that someone else can be completely human? So the third category: How do we um, practice and embody this uh, kindness and wisdom in the world? And that's thoughts. Right. So our thoughts ultimately affect how we view the the world. George often talks about lenses. Right. So we're 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 working to understand and cultivate certain understand our own mind and cultivate certain lenses, both to care for and protect others and to care for and protect ourselves. So when we have the view or the lens that other people are less than, this establishes unequal, unfair, incorrect hierarchy and authoritative power structures which can become coercive. And this is usually unconscious. This is the view that I have important information or skill uh, or I understand how things should be, and, and, and you don't. If we practice enough, if we practice enough, what we see is the universality of dukkha, or suffering, in the ways that we are unskillful. And if this occurs enough, it has a way of leveling the, leveling the playing field, right? Right? I like to be, to the degree that it's uncomfortable, uncomfortable meaning that it, it dissolves the, the sense of self that, that wants to feel really confident and, and assured, self-assured. I find that I'm in better relationship with people when I'm recalling, sati is to remember, when I'm recalling the first noble truth and how it applies to me. I experience dukkha, and I'm not a skillful human being all the time. It allows, it allows a lens that gives people other permission to be acting in, from a place of suffering and unskillfully. Right. You see how that changes something? When we have the mind of dosa, we need to keep others distant, so this limits our connective capacity, or we attack them in various ways from subtle to gross, right? When our mind is tormented by the hindrances, we are further from Nibbana. In Sanskrit, nirvana, awakening, enlightenment, freedom, liberation. When our mind is tormented by the hindrances, we are further from Nibbana. And closer to dukkha, all unskillful behaviors. When we are not kind and forgiving with our shortcomings, with our own shortcomings, we are on the receiving end of self-afflictive dosa. So protecting our own mind is caring for our well-being, our emotional and physical well-being. Our mind is the factor that we have the most control over. There's actually very little else that we can control. So not exclusively, but substantially, this is the category of metta towards self, right? This is the category of metta towards self. This is why it is so important. The The Buddha in the visuddhimagga in the section on metta says, Uh, that he scanned far and wide and found no one more well-deserving than metta, than oneself. Because all actions originate through that lens. Is there dosa or is there metta? So metta for self is a form of self-care and a form with regard to how it affects how we feel and experience ourselves, and it is therefore then also the lens through which we're seeing and meeting and relating to others. Short poem. Halfway through life, less or more, Every day, a hand to hold. Sometimes a stranger's, sometimes my own. Halfway through life, less or more. Every day, a hand to hold. Sometimes a stranger's, sometimes my own. The title is uh, Hospice Work, and I think the image of a hand... Holding another hand can be, we can read that uh, with a lot of sentimentality or we can just see it as a symbol of a willingness to connect, a willingness to be vulnerable, a willingness to be afraid, um, to, uh, to actually hold someone's hand when they're dying and to feel the coldness that is a direct and experiential indication that life is leaving the body, um, to feel the musculature in that part of the body, not responsive, uh, to feel the whole arm uh, limp, in a way, um, is to come into direct contact uh, with the inevitability uh, of death. To come into direct contact with a fear, um, a wide range of discomforts that can be um, that can completely erupt the sense of self from the inside out, and there are times in lives, not just when people are dying, when we have to we have to get that close. To our own discomfort, in order to show up for another human being, and then likewise at the at the end of the poem, you know sometimes we have to hold our own hand. This is not literally to hold one's hand, but to bring the attitude or mind of meta uh, to oneself, to all the again, all the inevitable deaths along the way the uh, the death of loved ones, the uh, dying of things past that we can't affect change over except for how we learn to relate to them anew in the present moment, the death of hopes and plans for how things could have been or we wanted that have not yet transpired and may or may not. that day of meditation practice on retreat where we didn't get what we wanted. Can we just bring the mind of metta? How often do we beat ourselves up for what we did or did not do? So what is the... What is the result? What is the end result of a practice, formally and a life uh, lived with this kind of exploration and in- intentionality? Again, Sayadaw gives us a list from the Visuddhimagga, and at the end of that list, we're told that we can die peacefully. We can die peacefully. There's a lot of reasons why I. Began um, meditation practice and became interested in the in the Buddhist teachings, but it wasn't for quite some time that I realized that maybe I'm actually just preparing to die. It's not anywhere near as glamorous as or romantic as some of the other reasons. that I decided to do this. Um, (laughs) But if that's the final stop, and if that is a really difficult life stage to endure, aren't we preparing for that in some way? Right? And then the promise that we could die peacefully. Now, if you've been with family or loved ones, or if you've done any kind of Any kind of work with the dying, um, you know that it's a stretch. Uh, You know that it's a stretch. And even if, and I've seen people die peacefully, and even if someone dies peacefully, guess what's going on around them? Chaos, argument, confusion, fighting, ill will, suffering. And I see that actually going on around the dying person's bed. And I'm certain the dying person is absorbing that. So, how do we die peacefully? I've come to understand this personally in two ways. One, we die without regret, we die without regret. We've lived a good life and we have a heart with metta. We learn to cultivate mindfulness, don't we? You know you all know how to do that. So you have a lot of faith and trust in something like mindfulness. You're learning to develop concentration. Have you noticed that the more you practice, the quick the, the quicker you can become concentrated? Sometimes when I'm with monastics who, of course, well, this is not true at every monastery, um, but some monastics really do have a lot of time for meditation. And when I'm around some of those practitioners, sometimes I'll see them go like a, go from like a four hour work period in the kitchen into into meditation and pity. You know, they just drop right in, right? So we can develop mindfulness, we can develop concentration. Uh, You've all developed many, many, many skills in your lives. You can also develop metta. This is something you can develop and learn to go into, right? And so what if we could do that? What if we we did cultivate this skill and were able to abide in this great space of kindness for others at the time of their leaving the body and for ourselves at our own time of leaving the body? The, the path suggests that this is entirely possible. And the other way we die peacefully, uh, and this is the uh, wisdom or in, insight side, is that we die with a clear understanding of who or what dies. And this is an understanding of anatta, the true nature of the self. So what else can we say about the relationship between kindness then and awakening? (coughs) Kindness fundamentally is an extension of generosity through these forms of action, speech, and mind. Kindness is an extension of generosity. So I'm actually not really separating the two. We can talk about each as distinct practices, and we should. It's useful to hone in on any one mind state to build a relationship to it. But for me, and I'm not, I'm not drawing this necessarily from, the, from a traditional teaching source, they, they map really well on top of one another. Right? To learn to be kind is to learn to be generous, and to learn to be generous is to learn to be kind. To consistently give in this way through action, speech, and mind, to consistently give in this way requires us to let go of greed, to let go of hatred, and to let go of delusion. To consistently give in this way requires us to let go of having our immediate needs met sometimes. Sometimes we're tired or we have a lot on our to-do list and someone text messages us and says, can I talk? And the impulse is self-preservation. If I don't get this thing done by tomorrow, I'm not going to perform well. What's more important? It's it's that kind of... And just the risk of trusting oneself. Maybe I'll do fine tomorrow anyway. If I give up some time Um, I one of the thing one of it feels like I'll I'll probably be working with this my whole life Uh, there are I I spend a lot of time and energy protecting my sleep I have an immune uh, condition that you know legitimately requires me to do that and and as such there's also a lot of fear around how much sleep I'll get Uh, and not often, but sometimes I'm in situations where I bump up against that, and there I am. Protect myself so that I feel good and my head is clear, and I don't get, I can get run down and get really sick, and, and being sick is very painful. Uh, or I can somebody else is already sick, somebody else is already painful. So, you know what? You know how do I manage that? And again, it's going to be different for each of us, but. Uh, in small steps, can we move towards someone else's needs? To consistently give in this way requires us to let go of attachment to our own views. We might actually find out later that our own view is the most useful, legitimately. Uh, and can we temporarily let go? This is what brings us into conversation and right speech. Can, are we willing to explore our own views to see? Are they gonna serve us best? Or is my partner's or colleague's view going to serve us best? To consistently give in this way requires us to let go of our need to be right, fundamentally. (coughs) Being right is a preservation of the self, period. Unless we're just right. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> to consistently give in this way requires us to let go of our need to feel safe all the time. Now, again, the whole first part of my talk hinged on the importance of safety. But there's a place where seeking our safety is also a preservation of the self. We're just holding things a little bit too, t- <clears throat> too tightly. So this asks, us to, this asks us to take risks. So to consistently give in this way challenges all of the ways, all of the ways that we solidify and maintain the self. It breaks down the self-making conditioning. Every single time we do an action that reveals the permeable nature of me or I, we see clearly the ways our clinging constricts an inherent freedom. Giving kindly to others makes us both happy and brings us closer to that freedom. Giving kindly to others makes us both happy and brings us closer to that freedom. So to make kindness a true contemplative practice in daily life, we must live with questions. Who is it that does not give kindly? Who is it that does not give kindly? Who is it that holds on to what is mine or me? And what is released and gained when this mechanism of clinging is abandoned? What is released and gained when this mechanism of clinging and abandoned? This points to cessation, the third noble truth. It points ultimately to Nibbana. And I'll end with a poem. I am imagining a hole in the earth, rectangular, a group of people milling about who used to know me. I, hovering above the hole in a wooden box, unable to see a sign at the edge of the hole which reads, exit here. I look more closely. The sign is made of granite. It contains a few chiseled It contains a few words chiseled in the hard stone, which convey what I did and did not do in this lifetime. I am imagining a hole in the earth, rectangular, a group of people milling about who used to know me, I hovering above the hole in a wooden box, unable to see a sign at the edge of the hole which reads exit here. I look more closely. The sign is made of granite. It contains a few words chiseled in the hard stone which convey what I did and did not do in this lifetime.